It is a privilege to stand before you again. I, I hope that you're not going, oh man, when is, you know, not again. But it is a privilege to be here. I do want to thank Tim. Tim and Sarah are, are uh, in North Mississippi visiting with her family. Her dad is turning 90 years old. That's not something you do very often. So they are celebrating that. They're with family rejoicing in that. Um, and so, so we wish them a, a good trip and a safe and successful return. Uh, we something turned on or something. You're right. See if it Is that better? <laughs> See, when you get the B team up here, this is what happens. You need to have like signs from the back. Turn on your mic. You know. <laughs> Sorry about that. I can start over. <laughs> um, I've said before, volume is usually not a problem for me. So sometimes I don't notice, notice if the mic is there or not. Sorry about that. But anyway, we do wish Tim and Sarah, we do wish Tim and Sarah a good and safe and successful journey. We look forward to their return. Um, just by brief personal pr privilege at a, at a moment here, um, I'll just tell you that the, this first month of the ministry starting in Ocean Springs has gone well. It is just, it's one step of a thousand. We've been spending our time getting to know families who might be part of the church going forward and getting to know them and getting to start to share our story with them as we learn. Because they need to hear what this is about. And the Lord is already opening doors, and we're thankful for that. Um, Stephanie does, I, I, she's not just a brochure lady, okay? But if anybody is looking for brochures or whatever, a couple people have asked, she's got information and all that, and we'll leave some here at the church and all that. But that's not what this time is about. So let's turn now in Scripture to Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 45. And actually what I'm going to ask you to do, this is very unusual for my preaching, but I'm going to ask you to leave your finger there, and we're going to come to that in a little while. Hang on to it for a minute. Because here's what we're doing. Uh, as, I, as Tim came to me and was offering me the opportunity to fill in for him some as he was going to be traveling in and out, uh, I asked him, I said, well, you're the, you're the pastor, you're the shepherd. Well, I want whatever I do to be in support of your ministry here. What's something I could do? And he mentioned something to me that anybody who's ever been a pastor knows. That one of the things our people struggle with the most is the question of, suffering in our lives. Why does God let these things come into my life if the gospel is about new beginnings and new hope and, and wonderful news? Why is my life still so full of pain? It's an idea born of stormy seasons in our lives when, when bad news and, and hard times can come not just once, but sometimes the hardest is when they come in waves. And that's that, that, drive, that drives any of us, if we walk through those seasons and, and we either have or we will, it, it should drive us to Scripture. Lord, let me know you in these times, even when, even when the suffering is there. Let me know you now so that I'll know you then on the other side. But it can be so hard. It can be hard when the questions come in this life and in this faith. 
And so, Lord willing, in the time that we have today, and then as from time to time, Lord willing, and session willing, and Tim willing, as, as I have an opportunity to, to fill this pulpit occasionally, every now and then, what I'd like to do is walk with you through some, some investigations, some conversation about a theology of suffering. I know that it doesn't make good banner stuff. You know, hey, come to this church and learn about suffering, okay? But I hope to encourage us in the crisis that we will face and, and to guard us against the wrong assumptions that can even come through evangelical pseudo-doctrine and the things that plague us with doubt when we need God the most. So I'm going to open us in prayer. We're going to begin with some other scriptures. Keep your finger here in Isaiah. We'll come back to Isaiah 45, verses 15 to 17. But, but for now, pray with me now. Lord, as we come to a hard topic, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't make good cross-stitch or good motivational posters. It's hard. Where are you when we struggle? Where are you when we hurt? Lord, we thank you this morning for the not only the sufficiency, but the perfection of your word. And we ask that you would drive us to your word this morning. Don't let us be informed by our conjecture, or what we think, or what we imagine. But Lord, let it be your word that informs us alone. In that, Lord, I would ask that you would absolutely, completely remove the messenger. Nothing about today is about the one that's up front. It is all about you and your word and the beauty of what Jesus Christ has won for us. So Lord, would you, would you be clearly seen through our time this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Last night marked a major milestone in the war and in the invasion of Ukraine. It was the 100th night that had followed the invasion. And, of course, with things that are coming out, it's hard to get an accurate count or whatever, but esti estimations are that there have been well over, at least, well over 10,000 civilians killed in that conflict. Not soldiers. Men, women, and children who are non-combatants. Killed. Families destroyed. And many times more than that who were injured. And, and over a million people have been left homeless, it's estimated. And of course, many of those are, are children who are going to be scarred by this conflict the rest of their life. Many, many of those, and I've seen the news that have come out from missionaries and others, many of those are Christian families who are looking for faith in the Lord at a time where literally their world is blowing up around them. Or closer to home. We grieve and we're shocked when, when children are shot in the latest incidents of violence in a school. Or closer to home, a mother and her child are killed when a drunk driver crosses the median on I-10. Or closer to home still, people in this room sit and are touched this year by sickness or sadness or suffering in one type or another. And the question has to come, if, you, if we think it all, God, why? 
Why do you allow these things to happen? Where are you in all of this? And with you in our time this morning, I want to come to what I, again, what I hope will be the beginning of sort of an informal series to look at the times when we cry out to God with all of our hearts and the sick person doesn't get better. We pray sincerely with everything that we, we, we mean it and they're not healed. Or what's broken is not made better. Or when you literally scream out to God and yet your greatest fear comes true. I want to speak about times like the day in August of 2010 when I was trying to leave my own family through a time of grief and loss and a funeral that I had just preached. And, and my kids, you see my kids all grown now, but in, in 2010 they were 10 and 8. And, and, I, and I, had to listen, I had to try to deal with them as, as they looked at me and they said, Literally, I had one of them say, why did God create a world where granddaddies die? And as Christians, we want to know or believe that God has a plan in all things, that He's good in all things. We want to affirm that. But what about when the events of our lives seem so senseless? If this is all God's plan, we say God is, I said it at the beginning when it was, we believe in a large God for whom nothing is an accident, then we have to sometimes say, then Lord, why this way? And, and it's also a key to our beginning to connect with and, and care with the world around us. This is what I had the privilege to preach on you last week, that we have to have compassion on the world around us like Jesus had compassion. Well, if, if we're going to do that, if we're going to go to people who are harassed and helpless, then understand their most common question. I've already run into it as I'm getting to know people on Government Street in Ocean Springs. Basically this, if your God is so good, then why is my life so hard, so painful? Why does God allow these things to happen? Will we listen? Will we enter into their questions? Will we enter our own? Where is God when we suffer? Can we as Christians learn to develop a, a real theology of suffering that rests in God and in truths about His character more than in our circumstances? But yet that still deals with the reality of suffering that we face that doesn't just gloss over it and pretend like it's not there. These are hard issues. These are complex questions. And we don't need cookie-cutter answers or, or Bible sprinkles well, here's, here's a few verses, and poof, everything's made better, right? We do need to meet with God's heart, for He does speak. Even through our suffering, and He invites us and He asks us, Will you trust in me? Even when you don't see. So as we come to this, what I'd like to do quickly this morning, but, but also thoroughly, first I want to address with you three questions, three statements rather, three assumptions that we all hear and that we all deal with whenever Christians suffer. These are the things that people say at prayer meetings or outside the hospital or in your little devotionals or in, or in the, the podcast or whatever. They're said from pulpits. 
and they are wrong. The first is this, that because you're a Christian, that somehow all of your problems will be magically solved. Now understand, if you are in Christ, then eternally they are. There's an old hymn that puts it this way, then we shall be what we would be, then we shall be what we should be, things that are not now but could be, soon shall be all our own. We know that one day it will be better. That's true. When we reach heaven, all of our problems will be gone. The Bible says clearly, every tear will be wiped away and sorrow and pain and death will be no more. But not yet. Not on this earth. And I'll say it this strongly, it is heresy. It is heresy to tell anyone that if you just come to Christ, then all your problems are solved. In fact, many times Jesus made clear it'll be just the opposite. He said, you will suffer because of me. Because we follow the one that the world hates, so the world will hate us as well. Turn with me, like I said, keep your finger in Isaiah 45. We'll come there, but I want to turn a couple of places first. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. Ben read this earlier, but I want to look at it briefly again. Here's your cross-stitch verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. says, we have, this in treasure, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That sounds wonderful. We have God's treasure in jars of faith. Now listen to this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And, and as Christians, we want to, we want to focus on just sort of the, the latter parts of those phrases. In fact, I saw sort of a, a mean poster one time that, that had these verses and the ones that were highlighted and bolded, you know, and made, made jumped out, bless you, we're, 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 that we're not crushed and we're not driven to despair, we're not forsaken, we're not destroyed. We want to focus on that. But my friends, you're not going to understand a passage like this if you don't really get the first words. In this life, we are afflicted and persecuted and struck down. Paul says that we are perplexed. The, the word there literally is without a way, confused. In your life, you will know days of perplexing confusion. Lord, I just don't understand why. Why is this happening to me? I, let me warn you, my friends. See, that's the great thing about being the visiting guy. To speak very clearly, very, very openly. If you think that faith is just trusting God, that He's going to remove all the difficulties in your life, then your Christianity will not survive this life. To be a Christian does not mean that all your problems are gone. Here's the second assumption I was speaking of that if you are having problems, therefore, it's because you're not spiritual enough. Or you don't have enough faith. Jesus himself said that in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might. He said you will have trouble. Oh, in 2 Corinthians 11, a few chapters over from what we just read, 
Paul lists the suffering that he's gone through. Starting in verse 24. He says, five times I received, this is the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not week. Paul lays it all out, everything that he's gone through. In, in, the, in the next chapter over, he's going to talk about this thorn in his side, this cause of more suffering. And he says, I prayed earnestly multiple times and God didn't take it away. Well, Paul, that's because you're not spiritual enough, right? Paul, that's that's because you, you just don't have enough Faith, Paul, if you would just reach out and claim it, then God will heal you of everything. And that is said every day from pulpits in this nation. You hear how silly it sounds when you put it into Paul's life. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 4, says this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You hear that when, when suffering comes, it isn't strange. It isn't because you aren't spiritual. But what that means is that even when you look at it this way, when you are sometimes closest to God, sometimes when you're at the time of your greatest faith, that's when the bottom can come. And sometimes you won't be able to explain why. There's a third assumption that is often said from pulpits that all the problems that you have in this life will be specifically addressed by the Bible. Now understand, for over 20 years as a senior pastor, one of the hallmarks of my ministry has been my my radical belief in the sufficiency and the perfection of Scripture. It is a primary principle in my ministry. The, the, the Word of God is sufficient for all things. But how you deal with the loss of a child who has died is never specifically addressed in Scripture. What you do when the, when the biopsy comes back positive, you can't just turn to page 638 and there's the answer in your Bible. By the way, don't look. I have no idea what's on page Where you go when you've been, when you've been, when you've tried your dream and you found failure, the, the crises and the tragedies and the sufferings that we face are not specifically answered. And, and over and over in life, we will come face to face with problems that we cannot solve. I, I could name a dozen instances from my life. You could name them from yours. As a pastor, I counsel people day after day. 
And, and, I, and I want things to be better. And I, and I care. And I counsel people for long periods of time. And they just don't seem to be getting better. There's times I've come home to Stephanie at the end of a long day. And I don't bring the specifics home, of course. But there's times when I say, you know, babe, I just... I was on my knees with people today, and, and, I, and I want to fix this, and, and I just can't. And, and, and again, I believe with all my heart in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's why I do what I do, by the way. It's why I'm going to Ocean Springs. It, it's what gives hope and power to anything that I do in my ministry. There is nothing in this life for which God's Word is not, is not power. God's Word is truth, its teaching, its principles are the guide for all of our life. But it is not a band-aid. It's not a how-to manual. You can't just turn to a magic page of Scripture and, and follow five steps and, and poof, all of your problems are gone. Can I confess that there's been times in my life that I, that I wish that I wish this Bible were like a transporter in Star Trek? Can I can I geek out on you for a minute? You know what you know? You Star Trek fans here, the transporter that you know you're down on the on the planet and the enemies are coming in and you call up to the mothership, beat me out of here now, and you're gone. You ever felt that way in life? Or wishing that you just had a fast forward button, you could just move past this part. Scripture is a guide for the journey. It is power for traveling. It is exactly what we need. But the journey still gets long and weird. So against those three false teachings, let me offer two thesis statements, if you will, for, for a theology of suffering. Martin Luther had 95. I'm just going to give you two. Okay. Things that I'm going to come back to you with and test and consider that, that, will, that will reign through this series. And the first is this, that no matter what, God is always in control. And he does have a plan for everything, even the things that you will suffer. Now, we may not often know and have a reason for the suffering in this life. But our God is nothing but good and nothing but loving, even when it is so hard to see. And the second is this, that far from being a removal of God's love, the times that we go, suffer, go through suffering are actually a chance to know God's love more deeply and more closely, more than any other time in your life. It's, by the way, how Paul sums up his struggles after that list. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, he says this, quoting, saying what God said. He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. The theologian A.W. Tozer said this, he said, God will not use anyone greatly whom he has not hurt deeply. Do you hear that? God will not use anyone greatly whom he has not hurt deeply. Now, i got to tell you, 
I like the theology of that. I'm afraid of the reality of that. I don't want to walk through that, do you? Look at the path of God's own Son. Hebrews 5, verse 8, the author says that Jesus, although he was a son, God handed him over to suffer. Now you understand, again, for our theology of suffering, that the suffering of Jesus, that was not suffering for, for punishment of sin that he did. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was wounded and bruised and, and broken for our sins. But his suffering personally was in the context of absolute innocence. And in Jesus' sinless state, he suffered. And you, as you follow Jesus every day until the day comes that he returns and makes all things new, new you will suffer also. And yes, we're not sinless. Sometimes suffering will be as a consequence of sin. Now you need to know if you're in Christ, even that is not a punishment of sin. Be very clear. If you are in Jesus Christ, then all of the punishment for your sin has been poured out on Christ. But God disciplines us as children. And he wants to teach us that sin will harm us. And he allows us to taste the consequences of sin in this, in this world. So we will learn to love his righteousness even more. God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ for our sins. But the payment of it will never be required again. But even aside from that, that sounds weird to say, aside from the suffering of Jesus Christ. But the simple fact is that we often suffer in this life. Simply as a consequence of sharing life in this fallen this world that is itself broken because of sin. And sometimes the suffering that you go through is simply because this world is fallen and imperfect and messed up. Not because of a specific sin that you or someone else did. Remember when Jesus came to the blind man had been blind from birth and the disciples said, Who sinned that this man is blind? Is it, is it his parents or him or whatever? And, and Jesus said, it's so that God's glory could be with you. Sometimes this, this world is broken. It's, it's not how God made it to be. It, this world is itself rebellious and perverted and, and polluted and sin-sick. And we will be touched by that pollution and that brokenness and, and that suffering as we walk through it. So in, so in stating these, these two theses that I just gave, that that God is always in control even of your suffering, and that suffering is a chance not for the removal of His love, but to know His love more. And stating that, it's not that we will know the answers for all of our suffering in this life. And I recognize that even to say that is hard. Don't pass over that easily or quickly. Some of you know. You have been through horrible Maybe for years, maybe very acutely. And you said, God, why? And you just don't see it out. So in the time that we have briefly this morning, don't worry, I'm not just beginning the sermon. 
okay? But in the time that we have left, I want to begin to give you some hope of the realization of God's goodness and his love, even when we cannot see his plan. How do we find hope when God seems to hide himself? Now turn with me to Isaiah 45. And again, we're not just getting started. It's okay. Isaiah chapter 45. Now what you need to know about this chapter, even before I read it, this is a famous chapter. Look at 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. This is one of the most famous prophecies in all of Scripture. A prophecy that is given over a century before Cyrus was even born. Our God is so sovereign. He is so large. He is so in control that he can even... Cyrus was a non-believing king. And God's going to go on to talk about how he's going to use Cyrus to accomplish his will. Our God is so in control that he can use a pagan king as an instrument of doing his will and he can call his shot a century before that king is born. This is an amazing passage. In fact, again, look at look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. When, do you hear that phrase, his anointed? Does that ring a bell? What if I told you that in the, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that is used for Cyrus is Cyrus Christos. You hear it? God is using the same word here that he's using for his anointed son, Jesus Christ. He's calling Cyrus that same. Cyrus will be raised up to deliver his people. Cyrus will be the one who will free them from their exile and their bondage and allow them to come home. It's an amazing chapter of God's ultimate sovereignty and his power and his rule. And yet, if you continue through it, it's a hard chapter. Because of what will transpire before the deliverer will come. Before the deliverer, the Assyrians will come first. The very ones from Nineveh that Jonah went to warn to repentance. And the Assyrians will conquer everything in front of them like an unstoppable tidal wave surge. The the Assyrians will come and they will experience the kind of victories over God's people that God had promised to Israel when they took the promised land. Cities will be leveled, wiped off the map. And in fact, it will be the, the Israelites wrote in the annals of the day that they felt like they felt helpless, like birds in a cage against these Assyrians that came. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, we have never, none of us, have ever experienced suffering like what the people of Israel are about to experience. We've never been through having our homelands conquered and ravaged and pillaged like they're about to experience. I had a man in my my former church, a man who had grown up as a young boy in Poland, and looked out one day to see Soviet troops in his front yard and was shipped off to a concentration camp in Siberia. That man knew suffering. We have never known the effect of of husbands and fathers and sons left as corpses on the battlefield. Women left vulnerable to an invading army. 
families carried off, bound by hooks, never to see one another again. We can hardly imagine the suffering that's going on here. Actually, I heard a Jewish woman who had survived the Holocaust, and she spoke of, of growing up in a household of faith, and so someone asked her, after describing the Holocaust, said, where is your faith now? And she said this, after all I have seen, I can no longer believe that a loving or good God And people then are the same as they are now. When this invading army comes, they cried out to the prophet, Where is this God? Where is this God of Israel? Where is the God of whom David said, You are my hiding place and my rock and my refuge? And in their suffering, they cried out and they turned and it seemed like God was no longer there. So we get Isaiah 45, verse 15. Where the prophet speaking for them says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. Literally, the translation, if you want to get into the original, the most literal translation would be, Truly, you are a God who pretends that he is not there. God, I needed you. And you pretend like you're not even there. You hear the accusation? How could you? And, and I love the honesty of that. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we know the Word of God is true is that the Word of God never hides that this is a fallen and painful and broken world. And there will be real times in our lives when terrible things happen and, and we don't know why. There will be times when we cry out, God, are you there? God, are you, are you hiding? God, do you even care? Times when God seems to hide himself or be very slow in answering. There will be times when others will look at what's going on in your life and they will ask, why do you even still believe? And again, in our theology, we so readily affirm a big and a powerful and a sovereign God who has no limit to his power. If there's no limit to God's power, then what does that mean when I'm going through suffering and he could stop it? And he doesn't. Brothers and sisters, in those times, God's purposes are not our purposes. His timing is not our timing. But there will come a time when he delivers his people through amazing means. Look at verse 13 of this chapter. It says, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And, and then comes verse 16, spoken to those who would trust in idols. He says, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. To those who say, you, you can only trust in what you can see or control. You're the Lord of your own life. And the day of our Lord God, who alone is real, He will put all others to shame. People who say we are foolish 
or, or old-fashioned for trusting in a dusty old book. For those who say that our faith is a fable or a fairy tale. People who say we're out of date for believing in salvation at all. But God's people, in their, in, even in their suffering, again look at verse 17. You shall not be put to shame to all eternity. I'll say it again. His timing is not our reckoning. But deliverance is coming for the Lord's people. Unless we question that. Unless we feel like God is somehow capricious and singling us out for suffering and causing us to doubt His love. Then our God puts suffering on His own Son. Look with me to Isaiah 53. Any of you know this passage? Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, can I be real honest with you, brothers and sisters? To the people of the time, you and me, if we've been there, Jesus would have come across like someone that you didn't want to know. He led a troubled life. People at the time thought, in their performance-based religion, thought that God must be hammering Jesus for something. That's how people always think. When, Again, when, when they ask the question about the blind man in the temple, you know, somebody had to sin that this man is blind. Whose fault is it? And we think the same way. If a church is growing and successful, then the pastor must be godly. If, if the kids are great, then, then it must be because they have a great mother. But if they get in trouble, it's because the mother did something wrong, right? If the business is successful, we say, oh, God is with them. But whenever we're in trouble or hurting or embarrassed, well, well God cannot be with you then. After all, God likes winners. And Jesus didn't come across like a winner. Modern Christianity sometimes looks more like an Amway pyramid scheme. Like we're all just going to make lots of money if we just believe it enough, and we're all going to be diamonds. Not so for Jesus. His life was suffering from beginning to end. If you were there at the time, you would have told your kids, don't hang out with Yeshua. God's not with him. And ultimately, he's arrested and tried and, and condemned, condemned to death as a criminal. 
And, and I know when we have in Easter and other places, we have the privilege of reading the rest of the story. We understand what that was all about. We understand that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the great exchange that Jesus was dying for sinners. That God was putting our guilt on him and his righteousness on us. But put yourself there at the time. Here's a scruffy guy from Galilee that all the religious leaders tell you is dangerous. And he's been convicted by the Roman authorities. And now the whole of Jerusalem has turned against him. And even his mother and his brothers and his sisters, his best friends will not stand by him. They desert him. If you were there watching, if I was, we would have said, this man must be guilty. God can't be with him. Look what he's going through. That's how it looks to people who don't realize that Jesus was suffering for us. That Jesus was suffering to fulfill the perfect plan of God. It is the very core of our religion that Christ suffered so that we could be redeemed. And God, here in this text, lets us know that His own Son was in for a life of suffering. So when you say, why? Why me? Jesus is God's honest answer to our suffering. When we're hurting, when your family is hurting, when, when you don't see any way out, will God do what He's capable of doing? Will God deliver me? If you are weary with questions like that, then you are meant to hear these words, and you're meant to look at the Messiah, and you're meant to find comfort. As Romans 8 says, Romans 8.32 which is right after God has said, for all things, all, underline, all things work together for your good. All things work together for your good. How do you know that? Romans 8.32 says, for having given us his own son, will God fail to give you everything God, are you hiding yourself? No, I gave you my son. God, don't you see? He knows. He understands. Jesus himself is a man of sorrows, acquainted with your grief. The reluctant are meant to know and be made ready. The suffering are meant to hear and find hope. God in His goodness and in His wisdom will work in your life even through suffering that you would not want. Know that. Rest in Him so you're better prepared when the next time comes. Now, Stephanie and I moved here directly from Birmingham, where we were for eight years. But the 12 years before that, we lived in the Smoky Mountains. It was the first place I was a pastor. And we bought a house that was literally right next to the hills and the ridges. And it was an older house, the one that needed a lot of fixing up, and the yard was in bad shape. But we liked, I like to do yard work and I like to landscape and so we put in bushes and azaleas and up there they have rhododendrons and we, we were working in the yard um, actually haven't put in a lot of rhododendrons 
kept dying, but that's a different story. Um, but there was this one tree in the front yard that I couldn't stand. It kept sending up these roots that, that hit my mower and kept dropping these seed pods that were that would crunch when you tried to walk bare feet, barefoot and and it just it was just the, the tree was a nuisance. And and it never it wasn't very pretty and it didn't have flowers like the others did and it was just in the way. So so after one spring after a couple years there, I just got out the chainsaw and just Sometimes it can be therapeutic to cut something down, you know? And I just I just whacked that whole tree down. Dropped it down. My kids thought it was great. They got out all their toy figures and were playing among the branches and all that. I just I was gonna get rid of that tree. And then a friend of mine, a friend who was from the area, who lived in the mountains for generations, a friend came by and said, Mark, what have you done? Don't you know? That tree is called a royal polonia. I wish I could show you a picture of it. Google it. Polonia is how you spell it. Royal polonia. Don't Google it now. Somebody reach over your phones. Just hang with me. My friend said, that is a rare tree. That is a treasure tree. Because of its beautiful, beautiful purple flowers that just cover it more beautiful than any tree that you've ever seen. And I said, but I've been here two or three years and it hasn't bloomed once. And my friend said, that's because it only blooms occasionally. Always after a hard winter. Or an extremely dry summer. Or after a really severe storm. Mark, you didn't see it because you weren't patient enough. My friends, there is a beauty in God's plan that often comes to us through storms and suffering. Will you patiently look at Jesus? The one who came to reign and to suffer. The reason that we trust God when it seems like he is not there is not because our Circumstances are always pleasant or always revealing the mind of God, but because Christ Jesus has revealed to us the heart of our God. Even when our circumstances don't make sense, we trust in His character. And so often in this life, we have to come back simply to that. This world will not make sense, it remains fallen and broken. And some of us in our weakness, We'll face great success because God knows we need that. But some of us in our strength will experience great hurt because God knows that the world needs to see faithfulness to Him in the midst of great suffering. I don't stand here today and claim to know what God will call you to. But I do know this. He is committed to bringing glory to Himself through you. For he is doing all things immeasurably more according to his power at work in us. Immeasurably more than we can even ask or imagine. For we have been won by the suffering and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, help us See now 
we study your word and your promises. Help us to see that suffering is part of our life. For it brings forth in us the weight of glory immeasurable, even that's unimaginable right now. For it is that which you have ordained for those who love you and who are called according to your spirit. Give us the faith and the grace to wait on you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.